So here we are set in uh, Woolly Woolly in Camberwell Green. I'm here with Marie Leconte. Marie, thank you very much for coming on The Corner Table. Obviously. Happy to be here. Could you tell us uh, why you've chosen Woolly Woolly as your corner table of choice? Oh, well, actually, so I um, I sort of have a long, complicated history with dumplings, uh, the Chinese kind, to be clear, because I've, I've talked about dumplings on Twitter before and people think I'm just obsessed with the kind of, you know, English, like balls of dough. Uh, to clarify, that's not what I mean. But no, no, I was convinced I didn't like them for the longest time until my friend Francis um, brought me, was like, listen, you know, there's a good spot in Soho, like, let's go together, try, like, you know, it's on me anyway, so it's fine. And it was such a discovery and it was such a beautiful moment. I was like, you know, maybe this is my favourite food. Um, and then since then, I've kind of... Um, been eating dumplings as much as I can they're a really good hangover food that's kind of my tip like if you're feeling really really horrible and you're at home after a night out they're a really good thing to order and eat in bed because they're basically finger food um, but also quite greasy without being too greasy but anyway so Francis uh, used to live around the corner in Camberwell my friend um, and uh, brought me here uh, once and I really enjoyed it um, and so I thought you know why not come back now I have an excuse to, uh, to come back and I kind of live up the road anyway so I'm South Londoner so yeah, there you go. Normally I would just dive straight into what we're going to talk about, which is of course your book, but um, perhaps we should avert our attention to the menu. There's so much to choose from. What do you fancy? I think I was literally just going to go for a large selection of dumplings. Is this in aid of a night out last uh, it's night? It's not actually, no, no, I, no. Um, I'm fine. It's just, <laughs> I just really love dumplings. Yeah. <laughs> I completely, completely with you on that. All right. Do you want to reel them off? Uh, yeah, sure. Can we have some grilled pork and chive dumplings, please? Some prawn hargau. Uh, some pork and prawn sumai. I still don't really know how to pronounce it, but long bao crab and pork dumplings. How many is that? Four. Okay, and then can we have some chive and prawn dumplings? And actually a second helping of the grilled pork and chive. I, I do feel quite strongly that if you don't feel a bit ill after eating dumplings, you didn't eat enough of them. Where did the urge to write this book come from? Quite brave to break the fourth wall in the way that you do. So yeah, it's a deeply unimpressive story um, in that. So I went freelance in the summer of 2017 um, and I'd kind of always wanted to write a book. And then after going freelance, actually quite a lot of people said, well, you know, surely now is the time if you want to write a book. But I, I did have this slight problem of not knowing what I wanted to write a book about. Um, and, you know, and life kept sort of, like, getting in the way. And then, yeah, so I think one night in April 2018, um, I couldn't sleep. But, you know, that's, like, specific sort of insomnia as well, where you know sleep is not coming anytime soon. <laughs> um, and so I kind of sat there in bed, and I was like, you know what? I can think about it now. It's not like I'm going to get to sleep before, for, like, before, like, 4 or 5 a.m. anyway. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, what What do I care about? Um, so, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, let, let's try and think about it in a different way, not just what should I write a book about. I sort of like try to flip it. It's like, okay, what, what do I care about? What do I find interesting? Like, so interesting that I could spend quite a lot of time um, writing, like, working on. It's like, okay, well, politics, you know, that, that's the obvious thing. Like, I care about politics. I write about politics all the time anyway. And within that, what was the thing? And I was like, oh, actually, gossip. Um, so I, um, before being a political reporter, I was a diary reporter at the Evening Standard, actually. It was, sort of like the yeah, evening standards political diarist so I kind of did basically political gossip for a living which I think few people ever get to do so I feel very happy to have been able to have that job um, for a while and I was like okay gossip um, you know political gossip and, and it was the weirdest thing actually because I was kind of sitting there in bed thinking someone must have written that like you know I'll keep thinking about it but realistically it's such a, like, it seemed like such an obvious topic to me that I was like surely someone's done that and so I actually came up with the title haven't you heard 
on that sleep night as well, still not able uh, to sleep, and then woke up the next morning, um, Google, but like Google's were like, you know, every keyword I could think of, and I was like, oh, no one has written a book about political gossip. This is really weird. I have to say, when I started reading, I, I was also surprised. I thought, surely somebody has attempted to, in that way, break the fourth wall with the public and say, actually, this is the reality. But when I researched, I couldn't find one either. And I thought, oh, this is quite remarkable. This is the first time anyone's really tried to report about something that you would have thought would be kind of a goldmine for anyone who attempted it previously. It is, but I suppose that... And I think, you know, and again, that's kind of why I find gossip really interesting, is that most, most books about politics, you know be that memoirs and stuff that's more topical will always include a lot of gossip some of them will include even you know some bits on the role of gossip whatever but no one ever really bothered I think to just take it as a topic you know not like as, as a full yeah as a full thing I guess as opposed to that one ingredient um, and yeah and basically it's just yes, the next morning Google couldn't find anything um, took to Twitter as I do uh, to say okay I think I have an idea for a book and I think it's quite good uh, how do I proceed <laughs> no I think I said exactly you know I have an idea for a book and I think it may be good but also it may be bad <laughs> and I, you know who can help me figure it out and this woman Imogen got in touch she was like hi like, I'm a literary agent uh, what's your idea so I said it in a few lines she was like that sounds interesting do you want to have coffee next week um, and so we did and literally I just like because I think I was having quite a busy week um, so just on the way, like on the tube there, in my notebook, I sort of like you know try to write down just random thoughts, or at least make it look like I thought about the book more than I had. Um, and then we kind of had that meeting and talked about it. And she really liked the idea, and I really liked her, and we really clicked. Um, and so I signed with her, and then uh, the rest is history. And for anybody who hasn't read the book, it's important to stress that this isn't a book of gossip. It's a book about it. You describe the daily goings on at the Palace of Westminster what seems to mimic the structured routines of an archetypal English public school, it seems to me. I mean, how would you compare the sort of place Westminster is to anywhere else that people might relate to? One of my favourite quotes, actually, in the book is from Paul Macedon, who's now lost his seat but was a Tory MP at the time, who said, well, you know, I feel like a lot of people come into Westminster trying to be Francis Circuit, so, you know, the chief whip in House of Cards. But is that, but actually... A lot of people end up being Regina George, so you know the mean girl, the mean girls. Is that you know? There's a lot of Regina Georges in Parliament. Yes. So there's definitely, I think, a strong. And it was you know, I I didn't go to like an all boys um, public school in England because I'm French and a woman. Um, but but I think it it is very much like it does have a school vibe. And I think another MP actually, Bima Falami, made the point that he was that actually is kind of too kind to say that. Westminster is at Oxford or Cambridge like university it's very much like school like normally people have grown up more by the time they reach university whereas a lot of what happens is very much sort of like school level interactions mm. um, but I guess yeah, to kind of come back to the original thing as well um, it's it's sort of obviously like it, it is a book about gossip but it's kind of a book about the human side of Westminster I suppose um, and in that you know and I think that's why I find gossip so interesting you know obviously like as in, like, hearing pieces of gossip, but also gossip as a concept, because, you know, not, nothing's more human, and actually a lot of the gossip is about human stuff, so, you know, that can be... And, and I kind of willfully chose the widest possible meaning, I think, for gossip in the book, so that can be, you know, anything from I heard that X is shagging Y, all the way to, oh, you know, I heard the government was going to release the white paper next week um, earlier than planned. Um, and, and, and I do think that's such a fundamental part of human nature to, you know, have a piece of information you should not be sharing with anyone. But actually, you can't really help it. You will be sharing it with people. And then, you know, 
stuff happens. You quote someone in the book as saying that politics is about character and intention. What do they mean precisely? Oh, okay. I remember actually that quote was by Will Tanner, who used to work um, in Number 10 under That's Theresa right. May. Which, no, no, I'm just impressed by how well I remember my own book. Um, <laughs> it's long. It's many words. Um, I, well, so I Fundamentally... And again, that's why, because and, and, and that comes up in several bits in the book, um, and it's come up in conversations about the book since, you know, there could be the argument, you know, of saying, actually, you know, every workplace has gossip. You know, like, wherever you work, if there's people who work together Monday to Friday, there will be gossip, you know, about work, about people's personal lives, and actually, you know, that, that will happen everywhere. So Westminster is not special in that sense. But I think that what makes Westminster special is that actually these are the things that do actually... Uh, define, you know, whether someone's career will go well or not well, etc. So I think, you know, one example, for example, is reshuffles, where it's never obvious why X person got that job or whatever. You know, it's rarely a case of, well, that MP actually has ample experience from their life before Parliament in that area of policy, therefore we're going to make them a minister in that department. You know, that's rarely the case. So I think, yeah, what, what they meant, um, so what, when, what Will said is that, you know, what matters in politics, who you are, basically what you want to achieve. Um... And that's, you know, A, who you are, that's, you know, trust is a massive thing in politics. And actually, if you can't be trusted, or if you can be trusted, that's going to massively, massively change the way people see you, the way people work with you, what people trust you with in terms of information and work and whether they want to work around you. Um, because politics is largely a group effort as well. Actually, there's very little you can do alone. Um, and what you want to achieve as well is, you know, that, that that defines, I think, every single bit of politics to an extent that it's actually quite hard to explain. So anything from... You know, if an MP keeps leaking stuff to journalists, why are they doing it? Is it because they hate their leader? Is it because they want to become leader themselves? Is it because, you know, they just love the attention, whatever? And actually, that's going to change entirely how the journalists relate to them and how their colleagues as well, like their MP's colleagues, will relate to them. So, so again, I think that it's nearly quite hard to talk about because I think they, they, those two questions matter at sort of like every single layer of politics. And again, to, I think, much more of an extent than... Um, than in other jobs and also you know when you look at it from the outside if you kind of bring in the rest of the country as well and that has been proved time and time again people don't vote for policy like voters don't vote for policies or policy agendas or you know who whatever they do it because you know they look at the person they look at you know do they like that person that person seem competent do they trust that person i think we saw that in the general election last year as well of people actually you know lots of voters like labor's policies they did not trust jeremy corbyn and john mcdonnell to deliver those policies um, so, so clearly, even from the outside as well, it, it is fundamentally about people. Like politics is just about people. How do you develop acute judgment of character? Do you have to have it as an instinct to begin with, or is it something that matures the more experience you have speaking to politicians and understanding when somebody's motives are deceiving and when somebody's being genuine? I think it's a bunch of different things. That like experience definitely comes with it. But I think it's quite easy, especially in your first few years. Like in, you know, in my case, obviously, I came into it through journalism in the first years of political journalist to be slightly starstruck I think by MPs and also you know as an age thing as well if you come in in your kind of early mid-twenties a lot of the people you talk to will be the age of your parents if not you know or nearly um, so I think yeah definitely like you know once you kind of lose that layer of like oh my god I'm talking to a minister I think it becomes a lot easier for you to assess their character in a way that you know that is more precise but also you know that's why and again so another part of the book is why so that it's about how social networks and formal social networks matter massively and that's I think a good example because I remember so a few years into Westminster actually like there were a few MPs I you know I'd met a bunch of times I really liked they were always nice to me we got along etc and then they gave me the time of day and I thought, you know, and from that I kind of deducted that there were nice people as well. 
and then I talk to friends who uh, work for MPs. So you know, there's quite a large network of MPs, aides. Like they talk, they've got WhatsApp groups, etc. And several of those MPs I found out were horrible bullies to their staff. Um, you know, and they were clearly nice to me because I was a journalist. But then anyone broadly my age, but you know, who worked for them, they treated terribly. Um, and so I think that yeah, it's not basically the trick to being a good judge of character is is not just meeting someone being able to assess them yourself it's also being able to text people you trust to be like that person I've met them they seem nice what have you heard what have your experiences been of that person so it's very much again so I think a lot of Westminster is just a group effort the way you explain the role of Portcullis House in particular is fascinating the place where politicians go to be seen and cut the figure of somebody who knows something others don't could you take us there for a minute and explain how it's become such an important space Portcullis House has really been the great leveller of um, the Houses of Parliament in that until then because um, you know, if you've never been to Parliament it is a slightly weird I was talking about it with a friend recently actually who recently got a lobby pass um, and who pointed out that basically there are lots of bars and cafes and tea rooms etc but all of them have sort of like slightly different rules so you know there are places where like only MPs can go places where you can go you know if you're ex but someone else has to buy the drinks so in Strangers notably uh, the bar quite a lot of different passholders can go but only certain ones can buy the drinks um, which is slightly confusing um, Port Colors House doesn't have that it's just one massive space that also looks very modern you know it's just a canteen effectively that looks very sort of like early 2000s um, where anyone can sit um, and it's quite big as well so you know and you can and it's a totally open plan so you can see who's sitting with whom etc but that is the thing of you know anyone can go so that can be like staffers if they want to have their lunches there you can see ministers there you can see sort of like anyone um, and yeah, and it is very useful because because again, you can bump into like one of the people I interviewed for the book was quite funny, who's a lobbyist and so didn't have a pass to Parliament. But he said, you know, basically the trick is that you have to get one person to get you in to Portcullis House for one coffee, and then from there you just have to keep bumping into people you know, and then you spend the afternoon there <laughs> without ever going out. Um, oh, these really dumplings good. are delicious. Oh, they're the best. Fantastic. Did you just eat dumplings all the time in all China? the time? Most dumpling restaurants serve like four by plate, so I was like, actually, if there's only four, then yeah. you know, this is what. So there was six by. So you pretend like you didn't know this was going to happen. So it's like this is, oh, no, this I is your place. Didn't. <laughs> I didn't come here that often. You spoke just then about Portcullis House being the sort of great leveller, and you talk in the book about how, in many ways, the internet has become the next great leveller of political gossip. We're seeing politicians using Twitter more and more as a platform for their own self-promotion, to lock antlers with their enemies, to share their reactions to the news and so on. How much has this broken down the walls of the halls of power? Does it bear any relation to gossip in Whitehall as you understand it, or is it just there to make the public feel more included? I think I'm going to answer the question slightly differently in that I think, and, and I think, you know, it's a change that is very much happening at the moment uh, and that I hinted at in the book. Um, but I, I, I do think Twitter basically opened a window um, into kind of political gossip and into, in general, you know, what, what really happens in Westminster, etc. But I think that window is closing um, already. So when you look at quite a few of the new, like, newest intake of MPs are not on Twitter and have no interest in joining it. So when was the window opened and when not- did it start closing? I'm not sure. I would say probably slightly before my time. So I would say sort of early, I don't know, so like 20, maybe 2012, 2011, 2012. Probably it started, you know, whenever Twitter basically became quite, um, quite a a, a bit of a thing. But but I think, you know, it's also worth looking at things like Guido Fawkes and the fact that, you know, Guido Fawkes was absolutely massive when it first launched. And when you talk to people who were around Westminster at that point, 
It was partly, you know, no, it was partly because of the content of the website, but partly also because, you know, and we forget because it was not even that long ago, but about, what, sort of like 15 years ago, I want to say. Um, it was completely novel for a website to update the new stories of like five, six times a day. Like that was something that felt completely novel and actually people were kind of, you know, bored at their desk somewhere in SW1 going like, okay, you know, what's going on now? And I'll refresh it now in case there's a new story, etc. And I think part of the reason why Guido has been in decline over the past few years is that Twitter has kind of filled, um, started filling that role. But equally, I think, you know, and that's kind of the sort of the conclusion of the book, um, is that I do actually think that some gossip should probably stay private and actually there is a role for gatekeepers to be that, you know, journalists who decide whether to publish a story or not or gossip columnists deciding to either, you know, make some stories that name people in their stories, accuse them of the stories, anonymous, etc. Because, you know, and actually like the, the later bit of the book that like deals with that, there's clearly a problem of, you know, A, like conspiracy theories, but B, also the fact that, again... If you get bits of information, I think, on Westminster without necessarily knowing all the context, then it's really easy to see the worst possible thing, especially if you're looking into it in bad faith. Mm. So I think I can remember, like, it was, I mean, it's a dumb thing, and it's not quite gossip, was it like Stella Creasy, I think the Labour MP, bumped into Matt Hancock, uh, the Tory minister, at a gig, and they took, like, a selfie together at the gig or something, going, like, oh, you know, like, we're, like, cool young MPs, whatever. And Stella got, so, you know, days and days and days of abuse for basically being friends with the Tory, when actually, you know, if you look at Westminster, like, they're... There are so many cross-party friendships, um, but in a way that I think people don't necessarily realise from the outside. So again, I think there's basically that there does need to be, like there are good signs to there being a bubble, if that makes sense. So I feel like I'm just rambling now, um, but no, effectively no, there all, is no. an inside and an outside. And I think there's information that clearly benefits from being, you know, broadcast to the outside, especially stuff that's in the public interest. But there are things that actually I think it is in everyone's interest to keep on the inside and within the bubble. How do we determine then what gossip within Whitehall is in the public interest and what isn't when a story can be written in 280 characters? It's nearly impossible. Uh, I And there's a bit in the book, which is, I think, one of my favourite bits. But I actually asked, so I interviewed quite a lot of like quite senior political journalists and I asked all of them, so including like um, editor-in-chiefs of newspapers, etc. And I just asked, OK, what's, you know... What's gossip? What's news? Can you can you tell me the difference? You know, we're sat here together. Just mm-hmm. run it like past me now. It's a great question. The difference, and all like, every single one of them kind of didn't say anything for quite a long time, and was like, uh, uh, hmm. And eventually, they all gave quite different answers. Um, and but I think broadly speaking, there is no, you know, I think like what the conclusion of that experiment was is that there's no straight line uh, between something that's new, something that's gossip. So it, it can depend on... You know, and I think, again, that's one of the issues. I think from the outside, it's probably quite easy to see journalism as, well, you know, a story is either a story or not a story, when actually we all function in grey areas at all times. So it can depend on which paper you work for. So, you know, there's stuff, obviously, that, you know, um, that will influence, you know, the Tories doing a stupid thing, um, you know, a Tory MP doing a stupid thing is more likely to be published by the Mirror than by the Telegraph and vice versa. There's who's your, uh, who's your uh, there's who your editor is as well. So I think specific editors, like some of them will be really rigorous and saying, you know, we'll only publish stuff that's in public interest and triple source, etc. Others will be like, you know what, it's quite fun. It's just quite a fun story. Like, you know, let's print it. And there's a bit of a tabloid broadsheet uh, line between the two, but not necessarily, you know, I, I don't think it's entirely that either. There's that, there's whether it's a slow news day or not, because, you know, papers need to be filled. Um, and that's, I think, something people don't necessarily want to hear. 
But it is the fact that, yeah, occasionally stuff will be published that's a bit dumb and that's not really a story because there was a hole on the page and it was getting, you know, closer and closer to the paper having to go to print and they just stuck a story there that's not really a story. So there's that. There's, you know, there are so many different kind of like metrics. And then, and one of my favourite ones, which I, I mentioned several times in the book, is... Um, is just like I mean, which I call the banter defence um, of like clearly just stuff journalists thought was funny, and so they managed to come up with a public interest angle to it. So my absolute, I think my all-time favourite of that was um, so Simon Danshuk uh, had some sort of affair with a young woman, um, and if you look at it, actually, it's really unclear where the public interest lies at first because you know he was a man he was separated from his partner at that point, so he was a single man. She was a single woman. She was not underage. It was all entirely consensual. So in that case, you know, why is that a story? And it, there was lots of great colour in the story of, like, I think she leaked uh, the text that was sending each other. And it was in 2016, and I think she asked him, she's like, oh, you know, Simon, you're you're an MP. Like, you know, what uh, what would happen if we end up uh, leaving the EU? <laughs> will, uh, will we still be in Eurovision? And Simon Danstrack replying, tonight I'm going to fuck you so hard you're going to forget about fucking Eurovision. Very funny. Clearly... The paper just wanted to print that. And the way they managed it was, so apparently they once uh, had sex against the desk of his constituency office. His constituency office, which is paid for by the taxpayer, and taxpayers deserve to know what is being done with their hard-earned money. Um, So there's a lot of that as well. Basically, I think the conclusion is that public interest can be found if needed. (laughs) That's right. There is that point in the book where you explain why certain stories out of Whitehall get covered in the press and others don't, and how those four words, paid for by taxpayers have the power to make anything and anyone newsworthy if their misconduct involves even the most tenuous use of a tax-funded <laughs> asset. Yeah, that's that, exactly and the, the story other, you tell. The other big one is uh, blackmail risk. Mm-hmm. So especially around sex stuff, if someone's on a sex thing that's like very funny and or embarrassing, but technically not illegal, what you do is that, well, you know, especially if there's an elected official or someone anywhere near an elected official going, well, you know... If Russia finds out, <laughs> they could blackmail them. So that's why we're printing it. And it's like, yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, brilliant. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Well done. You've saved us from Russia. What allows most people to have faith, I guess, in the machinations of politics is a sense that the system which connects Whitehall to the City of London, the City of London to Fleet Street and so on, is inevitably bigger than one individual. But you do write about the way in which certain personalities occasionally do manage to ingratiate themselves so well that they avoid the rule of scrutiny. I'm thinking less people who are trying to get to the top, but more people who have a very authentic and agreeable relationship with the press, say, whereby the press actually step back and say, we're not going to do to this person what we could because we know Tessa. It's it's a tough one, yes. I mean, actually, in that, that example in the book, uh, was that was probably one of the toughest decisions and I had to ask a lot of friends for their advice. So, because Tessa Jowell's so husband had some dodgy dealings uh, with his side work, and long story short, she definitely should have been made to resign and probably, you know, not join frontline politics again because it was not certain how much she knew, etc. But basically, yes, yeah, so I interviewed again some quite a lot of journalists and two of them, you know, without me bringing it up, brought up the specific example of Tessa Jell of saying, actually, it was probably our role. You know, we probably should have made her resign or could have made her resign if we'd really gone for it. But actually, all of us clearly had that thing. Um, one of them put it in a really beautiful way of saying, you know, as we're about to dip our pen in the you know, like green ink, we kind of stopped and went, actually, you know, we like Tessa, we're not sure we want to do that to her. But then there are other examples as well. So I, because um, I was writing the book around the time uh, of the Andrew Griffith sex scandal, so the minister who was found to have sexted, so like, you know, woman was it like 2,000 times in two months or something. Um, 
and you know, obviously talking to people about it because it was quite recent news at the time. Um, and what a few people said, they were like, well, actually, you know, most of what we learned from that story is that people clearly did really like Andrew Griffith. <laughs> um, because, you know, and, and one journalist who I think didn't want to be named said, well, actually, you know, I can think of certain MPs where if they'd done the same thing, probably quite a lot of us would have been able to say, actually, you know what, like, he's probably just going through a shit time. Or, you know, and, and there's an argument in saying that actually Andrew Griffith came afterwards and saying, you know, I had really bad mental health problems and I was busy having a breakdown, that's how it manifested. Had that been a more likeable figure that journalists knew better, maybe they would have been more admirable to it. But again, but I think, you know, the point that journalists made as well, which I think in, which I'm really keen to kind of um, talk about, I guess, because I think people forget it a lot, is that it's rarely an entirely conscious decision. And again, you can bring that back to sort of like, you know, normal, a, a normal outside of politics situation of whether you like someone or not will always influence how you feel about their actions so you know if and then let's say a work Christmas party if you know you see two people snogging if one of them happens to be your best office mate it's considerably more likely like even though like she has a boyfriend it's going to be more likely that you'll be like actually you know what her relationship is actually quite shit and her boyfriend is quite rubbish and she was really drunk and she's going through a shit time at work like fine you know it happens if it's your office nemesis doing exactly the same thing, do you really think you will think the same thing and have so much like um, compassion and understanding of why she drunkenly snogged someone else despite being in a relationship? Um, so, so I think that you know it's not again like a lot of these decisions I think are not conscious and that's not and I think quite a lot of people who criticise the press will bring up examples like that of saying oh well you know clearly you're mates with that person so you know but. I, I'm not sure how. You, you can't get rid of that. You know, obviously, yes, it's biased in some sense, but also people are biased. And you can't, you know, you, you can't remove that entirely, I think, from people's reporting because you can't remove it from people's personalities. So is it the case, really, that we are dealing, when we talk about politics, with something that cannot ever be fully professionalised? So basically, I do think that some tweaks could be made. One very obvious example is kind of, you know, bullying, harassment uh, and all of that in Westminster. Um but then actually no, that's a really interesting one because for the longest time I've been convinced that because one of the problems and I've done some reporting on that is that let's say an MP bullies one of their st- staff members what can the staff member do because as it currently stands um, staff are hired by their MP so it's basically like 650 tiny offices like tiny businesses effectively and so then I've talked to them and it's happened to me before and they're like okay well so my boss is bullying me who do I complain to my boss right. <laughs> so you know there's no one for them to go to and yeah something for example yeah I've been saying for a long time is that Perhaps there should be a system where actually it is the House of Commons or a body attached to the House of Commons formally hiring all the staff members. But of course, MPs still pick their members. MPs can still have a massive say on the salaries and probably have, let's say, like you know, a certain amount of money to spend for their office in general. And that can, you know, either be two people on I don't know, two people on 50k or three on 33 or etc. So they can, you know, work around that. Um, and, you know, and for me, that seemed like such a no-brainer. But then I was talking to so Jenny Willett, who's a former Lib Dem minister and who's now uh, working with IPSA. Um, and and I, we kind of talked about that topic and I brought it up. And she was actually... So I need to research it. I've not had the time yet. But she was actually... Something like that was, trialed, uh, was tried in the Welsh Assembly. Uh, did not work at all. So after really? a year, Why they not? had to go back to a model based on the House of Commons. Okay. Um, and yeah, and again, you know, I've not... So I think that's basically, again, and I'm kind of... 
um, I guess I'm proving my own example here of actually a lot of things in Western cities. You look at them, you're like, well, that's just very, very obviously not working. Why is no one doing anything about this? And then once you start looking into it, you're like, actually, you know what? It is quite rubbish, but it's the least rubbish option there there is because um, everything is quite broken, but in a way that you know it could always be even more broken. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I don't know. So I, I do think that yeah, perhaps some you know some tweaks could be made. But yeah, generally, I think the idea and and you know and also fundamentally like politics, I think a lot of people see it to be um, quite a cushy job, whatever. But especially being an MP, it's you know, and that's the weird thing, you know, especially becoming since becoming a political journalist, I have so much more respect for MPs. Partly because I think when you when you get to meet a lot of them, you realise the vast majority of them are genuinely like fundamentally decent people trying to do the right thing. And whether I agree with them or not on what the right thing is, you know, is a different matter. But also, you know, you work absolutely endless hours. You're away from your ha- family half the week, if not more. You basically don't really get days off. You, especially now, you get abuse all the time. Um, you know, it's not a fun job. And I think was it like rates of divorce among MPs is like twice the amount I think of like the normal population and stuff like that. Like it's it is quite a shitty job. So, you know, already and I think yeah, already there are issues in terms of you know, and we we talk about it I think around every election of who you know who would want to be an MP. Are we sure we're really attracting the best possible people who can yes. be our lawmakers? Do you really think that if we make politics even more fun, <laughs> that's how we'll get the best people to join it? Because also, and I think something people then realise that, oh, you know, like MPs are just in it for the money and the power. From, you know, and, and that's um, obviously that that's an issue. But as it stands, actually, quite a lot of the people who run to become MPs and become MPs, you know, on all parties, actually, could reasonably earn a similar salary elsewhere, I think, Um but also the power and I think and hopefully that's something that you can sort of tell from the book as well you have very 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 little power as an MP now, as a back especially as quite a young backbencher mm-hmm. even actually as a junior minister no one cares about you no one cares about what you think if there's something you think should be changed no one's going to give a shit about it so you know there's not that much money and there's basically no power so again you know do we really want to make it even less attractive as a job do you think that MPs suffer more mental health problems than the public is aware of? There was a study on it, which sadly I can't remember, so I can't quote the figures on top of my, over the top of my head, but they're clearly like, worrying figures. Like, it was the first ever study on the mental health of MPs, and it, you know, and it was bad. And I think especially over the past three years as well, and actually quite a few MPs you know, um, stuck their head above the parapet, which I think was really brave of them to yeah. say, actually, you know, I can't cope. And I can't remember which MP who was like, yeah, sometimes, you know, I found the broom cupboard, and sometimes I go sit there in the dark with my jacket over my head. Um, because everything else is too overwhelming, um, but but I think it's also you know, and that's actually you know for example that's one of the things you can probably change. Um, it's the fact that MPs are given very little training, so I think there's a bit more now than they used to be. Right. But until quite recently, broadly, like and then there's quite a funny story at the very beginning of the book of Dennis Kinner first getting elected, and you know, and he won. Obviously, he was a minor, and then he won, and then you know he was back at the pit the Monday after that, and his colleagues were like, "What what, what are you doing here?" And he's like, "I." Am, am I meant to be like there already? <laughs> You're like, you know what, what goes on? No one's told me what to do. Yeah. Um, so you kind of turn up, and actually, the vast majority of people don't really have experience. And actually, yeah, no, even like recently, so I've done quite a lot of um, interviews of the like the new MPs, and especially like because I talk to quite a lot of the young ones, people who are my age broadly, so you know, 27, 28, 29, and they're like, yeah, I have to hire an entire team now. I'm not entirely sure how I do that. Like, how? Who do I hire? Who, do, who should I pick? Like, what should I even advertise for? 
Um, so lots of that as well, because again, like, there's so much, I guess, assumed knowledge or, you know, assumed thing of like, you know, you'll be able to figure it out that I think, yeah, it, it can definitely be too much for quite a lot of people. So let's talk about the current government. Do you think Dominic Cummings really has anything like the power to subvert the existing order that is projected onto him? I, I, don't, I, I feel like, you know, I, I get immensely frustrated by the now never-ending circus of Dominic Cummings says a thing that's quite controversial and you know this like massive idea that he has for like some area of policy or Whitehall or whatever and everyone's all like goes oh my god Dominic like he's so clever but also like so revolutionary oh my god Dominic Cummings and then you know and and it's announced a few days later the government is actually going to do about 10% of what you know Cummings trailed first and it's like okay we can just move on let's just move on in three days do the exact same thing and go through the exact same process um what I will say about him is I think um, I actually think Westminster has this obsession with the idea of someone... It's normally a man as well, let's be honest, like of, of this man who's so clever. You know, the, the kind of Sherlock Holmes character, like someone who's got this massive brain who can change everything and who will always, you know, outsmart everyone mm-hmm. else. Misanthropic. Well, yeah, no, no, exactly. You know, and it's just quite weird. Yeah, and, you know, obviously, like, before Cummings, there was Nick Timothy. Yeah. Obviously, like, Peter Mandelson is kind of, like, you know, one famous example of that um, and yeah and I think Westminster love that and I do genuinely think it's partly um, there's going to be quite a neat conclusion which I didn't even plan for but I'm quite happy about it now is that actually if you work in Westminster you're acutely aware of how much of a mess it is and how many people have no idea what they're doing and how close everything is to collapsing all the time and I think that those people as a result end up yearning for you know, someone who actually this kind of like mythical person who's so clever they know exactly what they're doing and even if you don't agree with them, everything will be fine with them because they're so clever they're gonna fix everything. But that person never exists. The dumplings were comforting. <laughs> that note, perhaps less so. <laughs> Marie Leconte, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.